The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful grace that you have given to us, the common grace that we have for just to enjoy the beautiful weather outside, the many different blessings that we have from day-to-day existence, and the special blessings that you have bestowed upon us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And among those blessings, you have given us your word. And it is your word that we treasure above all things, because you have therein reveal to us yourself. And as we study the Scriptures, we learn of our Creator, and in learning of our Creator, we learn about ourselves, because you have created us in your image and likeness and for the purpose of bringing glory to you. And we can do that only by advancing in the spiritual life through the study of your Word and applying it in our lives. So now that we open your Word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand it, that we would have the objectivity and the courage to let the light of your word shine in our lives, that it may reveal that which needs to be revealed, that we may apply your truth and advance in our spiritual growth. We do this in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Let me begin in verse 13 to get the context. Christ redeemed us, that is, he paid the sin penalty to purchase us from the slave market of sin. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, as our substitute, that is. For it is with, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises, promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. What am I saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now that's the paragraph that we are studying right now, and as you can tell by looking at it and reading through it, It is based on a lot of information that is derived from the Old Testament. One of the basic problems that we face today is that Christians are woefully ignorant of understanding the Old Testament. They uh, know of a few names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're familiar with a few Bible stories. But they don't understand the significance, the import of much that is there. And the New Testament is really based on everything that's revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prefigures the New Testament, and the New Testament fulfills that which the Old Testament prophesied. So it's important for us, and and I keep thinking that once we finish Galatians, that we will go back into the Old Testament and spend some time studying some Old Testament books in first hour. And I don't know whether I want to go through a detailed exegesis of some books or just do some survey just to give us some overview and understanding of Old Testament theology and what's happening there, just how we're going to approach that. But um, I look forward to that. I love the Old Testament. That's why I majored in it in seminary. And there's some fascinating things that are there. And very few people take the time to study the Old Testament and to really develop what's there. And there's 
a lot there for us. Even though it's addressed primarily to Israel in another dispensation, there is much that is there for church-age believers, for our example and also for our instruction. So that's just a little preview of coming attractions when we finish Galatians in another ten months or year, year and a half, or whatever that comes. Okay, Galatians 3, we get into this verse. You have to pardon me this morning. I apparently absentmindedly took my glasses home Wednesday night after class, and so I'm barely able to read my Bible this morning. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. This is the basic statement that Paul makes. We need to review a little bit to understand the context here. And then in verse 14, we have a purpose clause. In order that, the purpose or one of the purposes, there are a number of things that are accomplished by Christ's death on the cross. One of those purposes is explained in verse 14. Purpose clause, in order that in Christ Jesus, that's how it's translated in your New American Standard, and I think that is a mistake. Sort of a knee-jerk reaction. The Apostle Paul has a a famous phrase, well-known in Greek, technical phrase that is unique to Pauline usage and Pauline theology. And it's written like this in the Greek, in Christo, it's the preposition en plus the name of Christ, C-H-R-I-S-T-O. And this little iota subscript here indicates it's a dative. And <clears throat> dative case, an n plus the dative often can have a locative sense. And it does so for Paul in many cases. Uh, for example, of 1 Corinthians uh, 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ. And we talk about this in terms of at the point of salvation, when you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are entered into union with Christ. You are therefore in Christ. This is the locative idea, the location. You are in the sphere of Christ. And we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection And that's under the doctrine of retroactive positional truth and positional truth. This is our position in Christ, our eternal relationship. It is a permanent relationship. And so we use the the concept, locative has the idea of sphere, so we're in the sphere of Christ. We also have a temporal sphere, which is our day-to-day life in time and our spiritual life. And this is where we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we're outside that sphere, then we are said by the Bible to be carnal, which is an old English word Translation in the King James Version for fleshly from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 and indicates that we are quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit and under the control of the sin nature and we recover uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit through 1 John 1, 9. But in terms of the top circle in Christ is a typical Pauline expression. And so it's just sort of a knee-jerk reaction for any Greek interpreter when you see the phrase in Jesu Christo that you automatically translate that in Christ because that's so common in Paul. But it also has another meaning. Can also can have another meaning. N plus the dative also expresses the instrumental case, or the dative of instrument or the dative of means or personal agency. And here it would be personal agency because Jesus Christ is the agent who does accomplish redemption back in verse 13. So we need to understand this It should not be translated, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come. We don't get the blessing of Abraham in some extended sense we do because of our location in Christ or position in Christ, but that the subject for this is back in verse 13. Christ redeemed us in order that by means of Christ Jesus, by the personal agency, rather, of Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The reason it's translated personal agency is Jesus Christ is the personal agent. He is the one who ratifies by his death on the cross, his sacrificial uh, death on the cross, he's the one who ratifies the covenant, the new covenant, which was promised originally to Abraham. And this brings us to a little review of what we talked about last week in terms of the covenants in the Old Testament. A covenant is a contract. It's a legally binding agreement or contract between two people. We saw that the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional or unilateral contract in the Old Testament. God is the one who made certain stipulations and promises to Abraham, and they were not based on anything that Abraham would say or do. 
How, how clear is that? I'm playing with colors with my printer and trying to get fancy. And can you see it, Bryce? Can you see the white shining coming through? Is that okay? Okay. I have to know. I can't get back there and look. Okay, you have the Abrahamic covenant. Here are the passages, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 15, 7 through 21, 17, 20, and chapter, all of chapter 17, and then chapters 22, 15 through 18. It is stated again and reaffirmed with Isaac in Genesis 26, 3 through 5, and then reaffirmed with Jacob in Genesis 28, 13 through 15, and thereafter it is referred to as God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if it is one covenant with them. Now, that's important because of some chronological issues that we're going to look at if we get there down into about verse, uh, I think it's about verse 17 or 18. In the Abrahamic covenant, there were three specific provisions. God promised Abraham a, a land that would be his and his forever. This is further developed in what's called the real estate covenant. Some people refer to it, most people refer to it as the Palestinian covenant. The term Palestinian has as its etymological root the Hebrew word Peleset. Peleset, the Philistines. So the term Palestinian has to do with the Philistines. Well, this is not a covenant related to the Philistines whatsoever. It's not related to any land that the Philistines utilized, and so I think it's a real misnomer to call it, call it the land of Palestine. It is not the land of the Peleset. It is not the, it's the land of Israel, the land God promised to Israel, and so I think we're, we're a little more precise if we call it the real estate covenant. God gave them specific land, specific borders, defined Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And then um, seed is another category. The Davidic covenant expanded upon the seed that it would come through David and David's line, the royal line, and that's in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. And then a blessing that in Abraham or through Abraham, all the nations in the world would be blessed. And this is expanded. So there, there are two covenant partners. And we, I made a point last week that when a contract is made, it is between the party of the first part and the party of the second part. In the Abrahamic covenant, the party of the first part is God and the party of the second part is Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants. But it is a unilateral covenant which binds God to certain obligations but does not bind the recipient, Abraham. And this is important. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and as a result of that covenant with Abraham, all Gentiles are going to be blessed. That is ultimately fulfilled at the cross. It's going to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ ratifies the covenant at the cross. We studied the doctrine of Abrahamic covenant last time. And we concluded by saying that the blessing of Abraham here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, is a technical phrase related to the third provision of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of blessing to the Gentiles. So that when we read this, in order that by means of, or by the personal agency of Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. This is the blessing promised in the Old Testament. Having concluded that understanding, we then went on to understand the doctrine of the New Covenant. And I want to begin by reviewing the first two or three principles which we covered last week, and then we'll go on. First point, the New Covenant anticipates and promises a future to the nation Israel, where they will be reunited, restored, and mostly regenerate. This will take place at the beginning of the millennium. Here's a timeline of human history. The central focal point of all human history is the cross. In the Old Testament, you had a general age of the Gentiles up to the calling of Abraham, which time God shifted his focus to Abraham and his descendants, the nation Israel. Their history, their times were cut short by the crucifixion of Christ on the cross, cut short by seven years which is also known as Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter 9. It was cut short and unforeseen by the Old Testament. God put in a new age called the church age. Church In the church age, 
Salvation in the spiritual life would have nothing whatsoever to do with ethnic background. In the Old Testament, everything was related to Israel. Gentiles could be saved. There were a number of Gentiles saved in the Old Testament, but God was primarily working through the ethnic people, Israel. In the New Testament, he's working with the church. At the moment of Christ, Scripture says there's no Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or slave, for we are all one in Christ. So we live in the church age, and we have unique privileges and benefits in the church age. We have a spiritual life that is unmatched and unparalleled in all of human history. We have privileges and assets provided to us that are incredible. You, as a common, ordinary believer, living today in the church age, have more power, more spiritual assets. You have more given to you and available to you than even Moses or Abraham or any of the great heroes of the Old Testament. We are far beyond, we are light years beyond them in terms of what we have. And yet, for the most part, I find that Christians today just don't even understand it, don't appreciate it, and just, just treat this, this unique spiritual life with very cavalierly as if it's no big deal. But this is incredible what God has given us. Now, the church age will end when Jesus Christ comes back in the clouds and we're caught up to be together with him in the air, and that is known as the rapture, the rapture of the church. The church is removed, and the last seven years of, of uh, Israel's history com- comes to play here, and it's known as the Great Tribulation, the time of Satan's great temper tantrum, when he gets his last opportunity to try to bring about his one-world kingdom. At the end of that seven years, the earth is in a state of, of almost total, uh, absolute self-destruction. You have the Battle of Armageddon, and Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the second coming or second advent. Then he sets up his own kingdom. All the unbelievers are sent to um, Tartarus or to Hades for a holding point until the final judgment, and you have the millennium. Millennium comes from a Latin word milli, meaning a thousand. It's the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. The church, all church-age believers and Old Testament saints who have died and have resurrected bodies are minus a sin nature, and they are going to have positions of responsibility ruling and reigning in the Messianic kingdom. But all tribulation saints who survive the tribulation, they have physical bodies, and they still have their sin natures. They're going to go into the millennium, they're going to marry, they're going to produce children who have sin natures, and they are going to live in this millennial kingdom. And the center focal point is going to be Israel and the final fulfillment of all Old Testament covenant promises to Israel. So the new covenant is primarily going to be fulfilled during this time so that at the beginning of the millennium, everyone will be regenerate. But as they have children, some of those children will reject the gospel and they will not be regenerate. Not everyone in the millennium is regenerate. Then at the end, during this time, Satan is bound uh, in the bottomless pit. Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist are bound and then they're released. And there's a final rebellion that God immediately puts down and then has the great white throne judgment, which is the final judgment of history, the great white throne judgment. At that point, all unbelievers, fallen angels, Satan, are all cast into the lake of fire for eternity. So the millennium is a time for a focus on Israel and the final fulfillment of all uh, covenant promises made to Israel in the Old Testament. So point number one, the new covenant anticipates and promises a future nation, Israel, reunited, restored, and mostly regenerate. Point two, the new covenant specifically states that the contract partners are Yahweh, God, the party of the first part, and Israel and Judah, party of the second part. Let's go back and look at this diagram. By analogy with the Abrahamic covenant, the party of the first part is God. The party of the second part is specifically stated to be Israel and Judah. God is going to establish a new covenant with Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31-34. Point number three. These covenant promises are not made to any other people or nation. They are not made to any other people or nation. This covenant is an unconditional covenant, so it is never abrogated. It is never broken. It is never set aside. It is dependent upon the character of God for its fulfillment and not on the character or behavior of Israel or Judah. Just as God's covenant with Abraham was unconditional, God's covenant 
here is also unconditional, and God will eventually fulfill all of His covenant promises which He's made. That brought us to point number four, which was to list the provisions. And I've completely run out of space. Have nothing blank to even go to. Oh well. That brought us to the provisions of the new covenant. That every believer has an internal knowledge of the Word of God. Every believer has a, will have a personal relationship with God. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. Every believer will have a comprehensive knowledge of God, Jeremiah 31, 33. Every believer will have complete forgiveness of sins. Uh, complete, they will have a continuous existence for the nation of Israel, Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, never again destroyed, Jeremiah 31, 38 to 40. There will be a regathering and restoration of regenerate Israel in Ezekiel 36, 24, 28, and 33. There will be cleansing from sin in 36, 25. There will be a new heart, that is, a renovated mind, Ezekiel 36.26. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit for every believer, 36.27. Divine motivation and capacity for obedience in 36.27. Material productivity and economic prosperity in Ezekiel 36.29-30, 34-35. to And there will be a population expansion, probably a population explosion in Israel, in Ezekiel 36.37-38. Uh, and that brings us to the observation that among all of those provisions in the New Covenant, just the only one that is analogous or possibly fulfilled today in the church age is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the promises related to the Holy Spirit, which is point number five. The only aspect of the promise in any form of existence today has to do with the indwelling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we need to review the seven salvation ministries of God the Holy Spirit. There are seven specific ministries of God the Holy Spirit that take place that He enacts for the believer at the moment of salvation. This is part of the package of the 40 things that God does for every believer at the moment of salvation. Someday we'll do a study on all 40 things, but right now these are the seven, seven salvation ministries of God the Holy Spirit. The first thing is that known as efficacious grace. Efficacious grace, Scriptures, John 10, 27 to 28. What happens at efficacious grace is that you are spiritually dead. You are born dead in your trespasses and sins, therefore there's nothing that you or I can do that's going to gain any approval from God. At the moment that we hear the Gospel and we respond with positive volition and we trust Christ as our Savior, remember the, spirit, the faith of a spiritually dead person doesn't do anything. It's not what we do that has any credit with God. It's what God does. And so God takes, God the Holy Spirit takes our faith in Christ and makes it effective for salvation. And as we've studied in John chapter 3, part of what happens is that we're cleansed from sin and we are regenerated. God the Holy Spirit creates a new human spirit and he simultaneously imputes that to us at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. This is part of, epic, or this, this is, efficacious grace. He takes our faith and makes it effective for salvation, which leads to point two, regeneration. John 3, 1 through 18 and Titus 3, 5. We are regenerated. The second salvation ministry of God the Holy Spirit is regeneration. And then the third salvation ministry is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some emotional experience. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not even signified by emotion. None of these salvation ministries of God the Holy Spirit are signified by any human experience or emotion. You don't feel a thing. In fact, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, all these things happen to you simultaneously, and the only way you know about them is when you come back and study the Scriptures and hear the Scriptures taught, then you begin to learn that these things happen to you. Some of you are doing that for the very first time this morning. You're hearing that this happened to you at the point of salvation, and you didn't even know it. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is when Jesus Christ takes God, uses God the Holy Spirit to identify you, the believer, with Himself. God the Holy Spirit is used to place the believer into union with Jesus Christ so that we are eternally united with Him in one body. 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 6.19 excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12.13 and Galatians 3, 26 
through 28. The baptism with the Holy Spirit takes place at the moment of salvation. It is not signified by speaking in tongues. It was never linked to tongues uh, definitely. There were times when there were people who at the moment of salvation were baptized with the Holy Spirit and they also spoke in tongues, but it's not a cause and effect relationship. Point number four. The fourth salvation ministry of God the Holy Spirit is the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. For the first time in human history, in the church age, every single believer is personally indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Now that's incredible. If you take the time to stop and think about that, that you, as an ordinary believer in the church age, have God the Holy Spirit taking up residence inside of you. It didn't happen in the Old Testament. It doesn't happen in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there were a number of people, not too many, probably less than than 50 or 100, somewhere in there, Priests, prophets, writers in Scripture, uh, David, the king, some of the artisans who worked on the, on the uh, tabernacle and temple, Bezalel and Aholiab, had an endowment of the Holy Spirit, which was a temporary empowerment for a specific task. And those tasks are always related to some type of administrative function within the kingdom of Israel. Bezalel and Aholiab were given the wisdom and the skills necessary to make the, the furniture for the, the uh, temple or the tabernacle in the temple. Some of the judges were given military ability to defeat the enemy, to uh, free Israel from the uh, conquerors that came in during the period of the judges. Uh, David, Solomon, uh, Saul were given the Holy Spirit in order to give them ability to rule and reign wisely and justly. didn't have to do with their spiritual life. It had to do with their position within the kingdom, the theocratic kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we have every believer has the Holy Spirit from the moment of salvation until the day we die, we are indwelt with God the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 6.19-20. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is permanent and is never revoked or lost. In the Old Testament, the endowment was lost. It was temporary. Saul lost it when David committed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah the Hittite. He was afraid that God would withdraw the Holy Spirit from him as he had with Saul. So he prayed in in his confession psalm in Psalm 51, Father, do not take the Holy Spirit from me. But that is not a prayer for the believer today. Okay, the fifth salvation ministry of God the Holy Spirit is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The sealing of the Holy Spirit. This has to do with with securing our position in Christ throughout all eternity. It is our sign of eternal security. It is a a stamp or seal of divine ownership. It is taken from an analogy from the Roman world where someone would take a signet ring that had a seal on it, they would put wax on a document and then impress that seal upon that wax to indicate that that it was like a signature. And it was a, a signature promise. And so the sealing of the Holy Spirit is a promise of our salvation and we can't lose our salvation. The sealing is irrevocable. And that's in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 and Ephesians 4, 30. It is a signature seal of our eternal salvation. The sixth thing that takes place at the moment of salvation, the sixth ministry of God the Holy Spirit, is that we are given spiritual gifts. Now every believer may have one or more spiritual gifts. We also know from scriptures that that level of grace, because they're called grace gifts, one of the words used for spiritual gifts derives from from the Greek word for grace, that we can have those gifts to a greater or lesser degree. So someone may have the gift of evangelism to a great degree, and they may have the gift of mercy or administration to a lesser degree. And they're going to be mixed in each person. And if you think about an analogy with colors, You have a color palette. You have three primary colors. And depending on the the various percentages of those primary colors and how you mix them, you can get every hue that you can imagine. That's how the spiritual gifts work. And then not only that, do you have these six or seven permanent gifts that are listed in the New Testament, but they they can be mixed. A person may have one or two or three, and they're mixed in different proportions. And then you take that, that, that mix, and you put it in a person who has certain natural talents and abilities and uh, certain personality, and so it's going to look different from one person to another. And Christians get all caught up in the fact that if you're going to have X personal, X spiritual gift, that you're going to have this kind of personality. But spiritual gifts don't have anything to do with personality. And I remember, oh, 20 or 30 years ago, it was very popular 
could, and it still is in some circles, the first thing you need to know when you're a Christian is to figure out your spiritual gift. And so they give these spiritual gift profile tests. And I remember taking some of those. And they're nothing but personality tests. That's all they are. And spiritual gifts don't have anything to do with personality. You can't take a test and answer 15 or 20 multiple choice questions. What would you do in this situation? Pick your favorite. So that may have to do with your natural talents or your natural abilities. And even unbelievers could take a test like that. It would just show what their natural talents or inclinations were. And people get all wrapped around the axle trying to figure out what their spiritual gift is. The commands and mandates in Scripture are to, for the most part, fulfill every aspect of spiritual gifts. For example, some people have a spiritual gift of giving. Well, does that mean that we just say, okay, the givers are going to give to the church and not me? Of course not. That's absurd. Every believer is responsible to give. But some have a spiritual gift of giving. Some believers have a spiritual gift of mercy. Does that mean that the rest of us don't have to exercise any compassion or mercy? Of course not. That's absurd. We all are required to perform most of the functions of most of the spiritual gifts. But some people are going to be gifted in those areas. And take an analogy from your natural life. I know some of you are still trying to figure out what you're going to do when you grow up and what your talents are and what your abilities are. But as you go through life and you grow up going through school, you're exposed to a vast array of activities. You have athletics, music, arts, literature, uh, academics, all sorts of different activities, hobbies, games, you go to school, you have chess clubs, science clubs, foreign language clubs, all kinds of things. And they attract different people. And as you're, you get attracted to different things, you, you try to figure out what you're interested in. And before long, as you get up into your teenage years, you begin to discover that you have certain abilities and you're drawn into those areas. And that's where you, you utilize yourself. And before you know it, when you're in your 20s, you, you've pretty much isolated what you can do and what you can't do. And that's where you tend to function same is true in the spiritual life. You start off learning doctrine. Doctrine is the key to spiritual growth. You start off learning doctrine, and as you begin to grow, eventually there is going to be production. There is going to be production because you're not just going to sit there and soak up doctrine and just fill up a notebook and go home and never apply it. As it transforms your mind and as you renovate your thinking, it's going to have its impact. And learning always precedes production. See, most churches, you go to church and first thing they want to do is, okay, let's teach, stick you in a Sunday school class or let's get you out witnessing or let's, and you don't know anything. You don't have a clue what the Bible's all about. You're, you're not, you, you've heard of four spiritual laws, but you don't even know what one of them is. And so you, here they, they get you out there trying to get you to do all these things before you learn anything. And the key is that you just come and you learn and you grow and just like in, in, in the natural realm, as you're learning and growing in, in doctrine, you're going to be attracted to certain things. And God the Holy Spirit is going to make your gifts evident. You may not even now be able to sit there and say, well, I have a spiritual gift of X, Y, or Z, but you will be functioning in that gift already. Maybe it's a gift of service. Maybe it's administration. Whatever it is, the more you grow and mature as a believer, the more you're going to naturally work out your own spiritual gift. So don't get wrapped around the axle in a lot of subjectivity and psychological, and that's what most of these tests are, is just psychological analysis, trying to figure out what your spiritual gift is. Put your emphasis on growing spiritually, learning doctrine, applying doctrine, and as a consequence, you will begin to function in your spiritual gift. And then the last ministry of God the Holy Spirit at salvation is the filling of the Holy Spirit. The other six are permanent and irrevocable. The first six are permanent and irrevocable. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is lost. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a temporary ministry of God the Holy Spirit to every church age believer. It's a unique ministry to the church age because the spiritual life in the church age is uniquely empowered by God the Holy Spirit. We'll see this when we come to Galatians chapter 5 where we are commanded to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. That the production in the spiritual life in the church age is uniquely defined as the fruit, that is, the production of God the Holy Spirit. So we need to learn how to be filled with the Spirit. This is commanded of us in Ephesians 5.18. Be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit empowers us and He fills us with what? He fills us with His Word, with the Word of God. God the Holy Spirit is working to teach us His Word and to apply that of his word which is in our soul. 
so that as we, we can continue to grow and mature. But when we reject this ministry of God the Holy Spirit as He's teaching us, as He's recalling doctrine to our minds, as we reject that, it's called grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. And then when we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit, we're out of fellowship. We're out here in the realm of carnality. And we're operating under the filling, uh, I mean, we're operating on the power of the sin nature. We can be incredibly moral out here and do all kinds of good deeds, teach great Sunday school classes and great doctrine and do all kinds of things, but it's all done through the power of the sin nature. To recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, we use 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, admit, acknowledge our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So those are seven salvation ministries of, the, of God the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the bestowing of spiritual gifts, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is five of the seven, are unique to the church age. They are unique to the church age, and they are related to the promise of the Spirit that, that is based upon the new covenant. Now that brings us to point six. Fortunately, I got this on the, on the overhead before we ran out of space. We have two parties to a contract. Every covenant, every contract has two parties. Abrahamic covenant, it was between God and Abraham. The Davidic covenant, it was between God and David. In the land covenant, the real estate covenant, it's between God and the nation Israel. In the New Covenant, it is specifically stated in Jeremiah 31 that God is the party of the first part, Israel and Judah is the party of the second part. Now, let's understand the analogy because this is so important if we're going to understand the New Covenant and its relationship to the church. In the Abrahamic Covenant, God is party of the first part, Abraham is party of the second part, and there are blessings to the Gentiles. These blessings include the salvation of Old Testament Gentiles. For example, the Ninevites who responded to Jonah's message of salvation, which the whole book of Jonah is about. And many, many Ninevites believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament, and they were saved. You had Naaman the Syrian, you had Ruth, you had um, any number of uh, different people, Gentiles in the Old Testament who were saved. They were blessed by virtue of God's contract with Abraham. In the same way, in the New Covenant, God is the party of the first part, Israel and Judah is the party of the second part, and Gentiles, running out of ink here, Gentiles, having a hard time this morning, first we run out of uh, stuff on the overhead and then we run out of ink, party of the second part is Israel and Judah and the overflow of blessings goes to the Gentiles and when Gentiles and Jews are saved, they enter into the body of Christ and they are the church. So the church receives blessings by virtue of the covenant God made with Israel and Judah, but they are not a contract partner. That means there is a new covenant with, the, with Israel, but there is not a new covenant with the church. Now that's something that's created a lot of confusion for people over the years. And why is that? Well, there's a history to this, and a history within uh, dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism, we are dispensational at Preston City Bible Church. We believe that God, ultimately, what makes you a dispensationalist? Ultimately, one thing primarily makes you a dispensationalist. That is that you believe that there is a distinction in God's plan in history between Israel and the church. That's it. Everything else is an outworking of that fundamental proposition that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. Now, the first person to fully articulate and systematize dispensationalism was a man by the name of John Nelson Darby in the early 19th century. He, he lived from the early part of the 19th century up until about the 1870s. Darby was, in, was from Ireland originally, and was um, uh, became a he separated from the Anglican Church where he was originally ordained. He got fed up with it. He had a lot of problems with the established church. Started a group known as Plymouth Brethren. You may have heard of Plymouth Brethren. And Darby played a pivotal role in our understanding of 
dispensationalism and our understanding of what we call the pre-tribulation rapture. Now, follow me on this. If you're going to hold to a position of the pre-trib rapture, see, people want to use this, this historical argument against dispensationalism. Well, Darby was the first person to come up with any of that, and so for 1900 years, or 1,800 years, you're telling me that nobody understood this, and Darby's the first one to come up with it? Well, then, all those people were wrong. Well, that shows their, their lack of knowledge of history. There are clearly statements in the early church fathers to indicate they understood that there was a distinction between God's plan and purpose for Israel. Just because you don't hold, you don't understand something analytically and systematically doesn't mean you, you don't believe it. You can go back throughout history and you can see certain themes and trends of dispensationalism and that they were evident there. In fact, a friend of mine, Tommy Ice, who I uh, went through seminary with, is the head of the pre-trib rapture study group. And one of the men on the study group, in the study group, discovered a Latin text that had hitherto been untranslated. There's a lot of early church documents that have never been translated into English. And it was written by a guy by the name of, it's a funny name, pseudo Ephraim. See, what they would do is you'd have a great church leader, great Bible teacher one year. And uh, the second century, there was a guy named Ephraim. So a couple hundred years later, somebody came along and he decided he wanted to have all the prestige that Ephraim gave. So he used Ephraim's name. So now to distinguish between the true Ephraim and his his uh, copycat, we call the second guy Pseudo-Ephraim. So that's his name. So we have a few things written by this guy who we call Pseudo-Ephraim, and he clearly states that the church will be removed, this is in the 4th century, 300, that the church will be removed before the tribulation. Now this was just discovered about three years ago, and, and Tommy and a couple other guys wrote this up in some scholarly journals, and uh, it just kind of slap in the face to everybody who's been saying, oh, you dispensationalists, you're just believing this new doctrine that just came along. Well, it didn't start with Darby. Darby just, you know, there's a recovery process going on after the thousand years of Roman Catholic allegorical interpretation that dominated the church from about 400 A.D. up till uh, Martin Luther 1500. Martin Luther recovered not only the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but also the whole concept of literal interpretation of Scripture. But it takes time to work out all the implications, especially when you get somebody who comes along and he goes through seminary and gets a seminary training and he gets out there and he just begins to teach the Word and he comes to an understanding that salvation is by justification by faith alone and he's in a Roman Catholic country. And what happens to him? He's executed. These guys weren't living long enough. A few did, but not a lot of them were living long enough to develop really good systematic theology. That was part of the problem. By the end of the 1500s, 16th centuries, when the Reformation began in October 31st of 1517, by the end, you're recovering premillennial theology. Men are beginning to carry out the concept of literal interpretation to other areas of doctrine besides just salvation. So you recover premillennial theology by the turn of the century into the 1600s. By the beginning of the 1700s, you're beginning to get more and more people realize that Revelation is not historical or in the past, but everything or 80% of what's in Revelation is future prophecy. Something very significant happens at the beginning of the 1800s. You get an emperor from France named Napoleon who takes a military campaign down through Egypt and up through the Middle East. And all of a sudden, scholars start talk, scratching their heads and saying, well, what does the Bible say about this? And some were saying, well, maybe he's the Antichrist. And all of a sudden, scholars start going to their Bible and say, what does God say about the future for Israel? Now you have three critical doctrines that have been recovered. It took 300 years. That there's a future for Israel, that Revelation must be interpreted as, interpreted as prophetic, and third, premillennialism. You can't derive a doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture unless you believe those three things. So Darby comes along in 1830s in the middle of this, this, this theological context and he then comes to the scripture believing these three things and he immediately sees the pre-trib rapture. Now that doctrine just, just sweeps the Western world in the next 30 years. And it can't all be because of Darby. And, and something that I've always wished somebody would do, I hoped I would do it at one time, but I don't think I'll ever have the opportunity over and really research the early history of, of, of dispensationalism 
and see if there weren't many other people who were coming up with that at the same time because they were all coming out of the same theological matrix. But Darby believed that there was only one new covenant, and that was with the church, I mean with, with Israel. There wasn't a new covenant with, with the church, just with Israel. By the end of the 19th century, you had these prophecy conferences up here in New England. There was the Niagara Prophecy Conference. There was one in Northampton in Massachusetts where Dwight Moody would come and speak. And in these prophecy conferences, hundreds and thousands of evangelical Christians would come, and they would teach a lot of doctrine, including a lot of prophecy. And you'd have speakers that would come, like C.I. Schofield, who was an ex-alcoholic lawyer who was a Confederate, uh, uh, decorated Confederate war hero. You had his young protege by the name of Lewis Ferry Chaffer, who was a musical evangelist and would later found Dallas Theological Seminary. You had people like um, uh, Harry Ironside came out of that movement. A lot of these great figures who dominated evangelical thought in this country in the early 20th century. But they were so concerned about make, carrying out this principle of the distinction between Israel and the church that what they began to do is, is say there's a new covenant to Israel, but there's also a new covenant to the church. And so they thought they taught two new covenants. And so you read their writings and you look at your Schofield Reference Bible, you read Chaffer's Systematic Theology, you read Walverd and Ryrie. Walverd was Chaffer's successor as president of Dallas Seminary. Ryrie was the head of the Systematic Theology Department until uh, early 1980s. And in their early writings, and in Chaffer and Walverd, I mean, Ryrie and Walverd's early writings, but in Chaffer, they held the two new covenants. And then as men at Dallas began to really look at the issue a lot more clearly and deal with the exegesis of the passages, they began to realize, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. there seems to be only one new covenant here. So if you listen to certain people who were educated at Dallas before 1960, they'll hold to two new covenants. Since then, the dominant view is one new covenant, and this doesn't have anything to do with this new confusion coming out of Dallas called progressive dispensationalism. That's another problem. One new covenant emphasizes the distinction between Israel and the church and the covenant promises are made between God and Israel and Judah, as the text says, and that the church receives the overflow of blessing. Now, that's just a lot of background information. But that's to prevent some confusion because somebody's always going to look at their Schofield Bible or they're going to listen to somebody and say, well, why does so-and-so say there are two new covenants? Now let's look at another important passage on this in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Beginning in verse 7. We must carefully look at how the writer of Hebrews sets up his argument here. And by argument I'm, I'm saying he's building a case. We have to understand the case that he's making and the point that he's making. And, so, and we can see this clearly in the English. You don't have to go to the Greek to understand this. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, first covenant is the Mosaic covenant. It's a temporary covenant between God and Israel. It was conditional. Israel, if you do this, this, and this, I'll bless you. If you do this, this, and this, you'll be disciplined. I'll curse you. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. See, the new covenant replaces the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Verse 8, for finding fault with them, he, God says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, and this is a quote from Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So once again, New Testament reiterates the fact that the covenant partners are God on the one hand and Israel and Judah on the other hand. Verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them. I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. End quote. All of that is a quotation from the uh, Jeremiah 31 passage. The writer of Hebrews quotes the whole context of the new covenant to make a point. He's not making a point here that there's a new covenant with the church. His point is made in verse 8.13. He sets it all up and this is his conclusion. When God said, that is when he said, that is God, a new covenant, 
he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. What's his point? His point is that the Mosaic law was temporary and it's been invalidated by the establishment of a new covenant and it's fading out. That's the whole point he's making, is that the term old covenant means it's temporary and it's being replaced. That's it. He's not making any point about there's a new covenant to the church or a new covenant to Israel. You have to carefully look at the terminology there, otherwise you will get confused. The writer of the Hebrews is just using this quote to show that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant of Moses was temporary. That's it. Nothing more. So point number six is that every covenant has two parties and the New Covenant reference in Hebrews and the New Testament reiterates the Old Testament covenant partners and does not indicate the church as a New Covenant party. Point number seven. The New Covenant is specifically with Israel and like all covenants, there are, every covenant is ratified by a sacrifice. So the New Covenant is ratified by the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why in the communion supper, at Passover meal, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. The New Covenant, the New Testament. It's translated New Testament. literally means New Covenant. His death on the cross would ratify the new covenant. Just as when God made the covenant with Abraham and he sacrificed, took the animals for the sacrifices, split them in half, lay them out on the altar, caused uh, Abraham to go into a deep sleep, and God moved between the, sacrifi- the uh, sacrifices, indicating that he, it was a uni- unilateral covenant. In the same way, Jesus Christ goes to the cross and it's his death that ratifies the covenant. Point number eight. The new covenant, watch the terminology. Let's get into where theologians have to be as picky as lawyers about how they say things. I remember when it used to be good enough, well, I don't really remember this, I know from history, that it used to be good enough to say you believe the Bible was the Word of God. Then you said the Bible was the infallible Word of God. Then you said the Bible was the verbal, plenary, inspired, infallible Word of God. Then you had to say the Bible is the verbal, plenary, inspired, infallible and inerrant Word of God. We keep having to add terms to specify what we mean because pretty soon the liberals and the heretics and the unbelievers come along and they try to twist the definitions of the term to using a legalese type of mentality, jailhouse lawyer mentality, to try to get around what that means to avoid the authority of Scripture. So it's always because somebody comes up with heresy and false teaching that has forced the church, orthodox believers, to more accurately and precisely define what they mean and to develop more precise terminology in order to express that, those beliefs. And that's been the history of Christianity since the second century. So what we say is the new covenant is not inaugurated. That's the key word. It's not inaugurated at the cross. It hasn't begun yet at all. See, in this new, I mentioned earlier, this new progressive dispensationalism that's coming out of Dallas is using that word that the new covenant and that the kingdom was inaugurated by Christ but it's not fulfilled yet. So you have to watch that terminology. Nothing began. It was postponed. Jesus offered the kingdom. Israel rejected it. So its beginning was postponed. The new covenant is not inaugurated or fulfilled at the first, covenant, at the first advent. It will not be inaugurated or fulfilled until the second coming. What happened at the first first coming was it was it, it was ratified. The new covenant was ratified on the cross, but it doesn't begin. It doesn't go into effect because it's, remember it's with Israel and the church. I mean Israel and Judah. It doesn't go into effect until the second coming. So the new covenant isn't inaugurated or fulfilled until the second coming. Point nine. Today, church-age believers who are neither Jew nor Gentile but are all members of the body of Christ receive the promise of the Holy Spirit which is based on the blessing to the Gentile provision in the Abrahamic covenant. That's the point of our verse. All of this is to simply help us to understand what Galatians 3.14 is saying. That we receive the blessing of Abraham and the promise of the Holy Spirit is on the basis of that new covenant that God established with Israel, in the same way 
that Old Testament Gentiles receive blessing on the basis of God's covenant with Abraham. Point number 10. As such, New Testament believers are described as ministers of the New Covenant. We convey those, we teach, we communicate to unbelievers the blessings of that New Covenant in evangelism. That's why we're ministers of the New Covenant. The blessings that go to Gentiles at salvation come ultimately from the New Covenant. They are an overflow of blessing from the New Covenant. And so we're ministers of the New Covenant when we go out and we proclaim the Gospel to people. We look at 2 Corinthians 3.5. Paul said, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants. That's the Greek word diakonos, meaning ministers made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Notice how the emphasis is related here, as in Galatians 3, to the Holy Spirit. And we are ministers of the new covenant because as we communicate the gospel to unbelievers, when they trust Christ as their Savior and they receive the seven salvation ministries of God the Holy Spirit, that's related to the blessing of Abraham. That goes back to that third paragraph in the Abrahamic Covenant, which is developed as the New Covenant. So there are a number of similarities between the present age and the millennium when the New Covenant is in effect. They're not the same. Just because there are similarities doesn't mean they're the same. You walk with upright, you have a head, you have legs, and you have a stomach and a heart and a brain, and so does a dog, but that doesn't mean you're the same thing. Similarity doesn't mean you're identical. It just means there's similarities. And people forget that. Just because there are similarities between the experience and the realities of what takes place in the believer today and what takes place in the millennium does not mean they're identical or the same thing. They are distinct. So, review. Let's see where we are. Galatians 3.14 In order that Christ redeemed us from the law, in order that by means of Christ Jesus, by the personal agency of Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith or by means of faith. So it is by means of faith alone. It's not by means of works. It's not by what you do. It's not by uh, circumcision. It's not by the Mosaic law. It's not by morality. It is by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, that brings us to the end of verse 14. The point, once again, that Paul is making here, the reason I'm laboring over this, the reason I'm going into all of this detail, I don't want to bore you with any of this. It's a lot of detail, and some people may be thinking, why do I need to know all this detail? Number one, I think it's fascinating. Number two, it's part of the Word of God. And number three, Paul is building a very intricate logical argument here based on your knowledge of the Old Testament. And everything that he says from here on through chapter 4 is going to be based on your understanding of the New Covenant and your understanding of the Abrahamic Covenant. So we have to make sure we're all on the same sheet of music and we all understand what these things refer to so that we can see all of the dynamic blessings and privileges that we have in terms of our inheritance, in terms of our adoption as adult sons, as believers, and all that God has given us in the spiritual life. If we don't understand the foundation, then we can just be blown around and tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And there's more confusion out there today because more, because more and more people refuse to think analytically and precisely about what the Scriptures state. They just want to take all of these terms and just throw them around and use them very loosely without ever talking about what they mean. And so people can't grow that way. They can't learn anything that way. If you, if you treated any other realm of knowledge with the lack of, lack of precision, then most people treat the knowledge in Christianity. We would never be where we are today. Nobody would ever get a car repaired. Nobody would ever go to a doctor and come out healthy. Nobody would ever, uh, ever trust themselves to a surgeon. If they just say, well, I'll just take my knife and just cut here and there and we'll see what happens. And that's how most people, most pastors treat the Scriptures. So we have to think precisely. We have to look at this and see what it's really saying because only on the basis of truth can we grow and mature in the spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for 
your word today and what we've learned from it and the tremendous blessings that we have as a result of your promises in the Old Testament. These are not just abstract things that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago that have no meaning or relevance for us, but that everything that has happened in regard to our salvation, our relationship to you and our spiritual life is based upon these promises, these contracts, these covenants that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with David, with Israel in the Old Testament, how you fulfilled them in Christ, ratification of the covenant, and also gives us tremendous confidence and hope for the future in their future fulfillment. Father, we thank you that salvation is simply by faith alone in Christ alone, not on the basis of works, which we have done, but it's according to your mercy you saved us. Father, we pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.